Thanks so much for having me. My name is Ben Christensen. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cambium Carbon. I beat the often path by creating circular economies in U.S. cities. So really excited to be here and, and to be talking today. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual and earth-smart success stories to help us all see the bigger picture in our lives and in our careers. So what's the best part about an amazing entrepreneur story? You hear what they're doing and you think, really, no one's ever done that before? Come on, can't be. Well, we've got such a tale today. For so long, we've internalized the idea that you can't build a business without harming the planet or that doing something sustainable isn't good business sense. Well, Ben Christensen is out there proving that win-win-wins are truly possible. And in my opinion, these are the kind of solutions that we need if we're going to survive as a species. Ben Christensen is the co-founder and CEO of Cambium Carbon, a company creating a groundbreaking new ecosystem for locally sourced carbon-smart wood. When you hear his business model, you'll be stunned just as I was. So here is Ben Christensen. Well, I'm really excited too, especially because I have no idea what a circular economy is. So we're off to a great start. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about how goods are traditionally produced, so if you think about pretty much any product you buy, you're getting it from a company that is taking an extractive model. So they're pulling out different input resources for that product, and they're taking that from somewhere, and then they're building a product out of it. And so the core way you can think about it is they're taking from somewhere, they're selling it to you, sort of full stop. A circular economy model is one where it thinks about bringing those resources in as an input, selling those as products, and then reinvesting in that sort of core input from the beginning. So we add in some additional components of that where our core input is a waste stream. Um, so really trying to save waste, turn it into really valuable and durable products. And then we're really focused on reinvesting in local climate solutions. Um, so we're hoping to create a circular economy that also um, does a lot of additional value as well. Okay. Well, I understood more of that response and every single part of it sounds amazing. That is incredibly cool. So let's back up. Let's go to the beginning. I know that you've been very passionate about the environment for pretty much your whole life. How on earth did you get up to this, involved in this line of work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's two big things for me. One is addressing climate change in a big way is something that I feel like I can do to really help serve the world. I feel like it's one of the biggest existential issues that we have. And we need as many people as possible really thinking about how we can address it. And in particular, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but addressing it in a real people first way. So for me, it offers this amazing opportunity to not just address and create a planet that we can live in in 2100, but also to address many of the societal inequities that we have um, in our current economy by creating a new and better model. So that's what we want to see. I really started it um, because I grew up in a teeny tiny town in New Mexico, about 200 folks um, up in the mountains, and was really seeing pine beetle. Um, so bark beetles came through and devastated our pinon forest, killing lots and lots of trees. So you know, the trees in the forest I grew up in, I saw them really die. That's exacerbated by climate change pests. And that type of input is really damaging to our forest and is made worse by climate change. And so I saw that. And what I recognized is this is a problem that I really, really care about. This is a problem that is, you know, unbelievably complicated and, you know, has lots of fascinating solutions and different ways to take that. And so that's how I really started on the journey. I studied it and it's been a, it's been a long road to get to where I am today, but um, have been committed to it for, for a long time. 
That's incredible. And you know, that actually happened. I'm from Colorado. We witnessed yeah. the same thing. Pine beetle yep. happened, forests thinned out horrible. You could see it. How old were you when you started noticing that? Yeah, I mean, as as soon as I can remember. I okay. mean, I, I pretty much grew, grew up in the woods. I actually was catching up with a high school friend, um, somebody I went to middle school with, and he was saying that we hadn't talked in years. And he was like, I remember sitting down next to you in sixth grade, and the question was, what do you want to do? And your answer was, like, save the environment. And I don't remember that. I don't remember being that, like, thoughtful or having such a clear vision. But it really has been something that, you know, I, I remember being around for for my whole life. And, and the reason that those pine beetles, it's because it doesn't get cold enough in the winter, right? The frost that normally kills them off doesn't. They stick around, they go nuts, kill the trees. Yeah. You know, there's there's lots of complicating factors. And that's that's always the thing with climate change is it's not just 100% this is caused because of climate change, but it's increasing those probabilities. It's making them happen with way more consistency and way more likelihood. So, yeah, it's really driven by that. And the sort of scale of damage and, and how much it hurts, um, particularly southwestern forests, um, you know, that's, that's a huge part of it. Fascinating. So it all began with trees. Yeah. And it's still a matter of trees, right? It is, yeah. And you went to uh, Yale. So I did, yeah. Explain that. Yeah, so I got my undergrad at um, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, just north of you. Had an amazing experience there. Um, really was more focused on sort of technical aspects of climate change. Um, realized that I, you know, was I, I worked at the national labs. I like didn't like working in the laboratory setting. Realized I wanted to be finding solutions that could really be scaled um, and got this opportunity to go to the Yale School of Forestry, really, really learned a ton about the policy and then also the business of it. Um, and I've always been really passionate about starting and building teams. And so wanted to create a solution that was scalable. Um, and for me, that means not just, you know, environmentally scalable, whereas we get bigger, we are better for the planet instead of being worse, but also one that is financially scalable um, so that it allows for that type of growth and the type of sort of catalytic impact that we want to see at a national and a global scale. Definitely. And did you have a strong rivalry with the Harvard School of Forestry? You know, um, not really at all. They, <laughs> Didn't they even have a school really of forestry? No. How many schools of forestry are there? There can't be that many. You know, there, there are a number of them and they, they okay. take a lot of different flavors. You know, Yale's um, School of Forestry is more focused on sort of policy and the business. Um, it's now the Yale School of Environment with the Yale School of Forestry underneath it. So it's got a really long and storied um, forest program that's amazing. So a lot of great science comes out of there, but also a lot of great policy, you know, business and innovation. And then there's lots of other schools that have, you know, more sort of a, a regional focus um, where focused on forestry in specific regions, which is super, super important. So state extension schools often really lead that, um, which is, is amazing because that type of regional focus is super important for, you know, addressing local issues and, and engaging with stakeholders. And to that point, did you always think this is something that I want to bring back to the Southwest or did you start to realize there was a more global issue here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we named Cambium Cambium because it plays a really important role in a tree. So the cambium, if you can imagine like a tree ring, right? So you can see each of those different growth stages. Yeah. So that's the cambium layer. The cambium is the growth layer. So it's all about growing. So that's one of our core pieces. And then the other thing that the cambium layer does is it really facilitates nutrient and water exchange between the leaves and the roots. So it's a connector. So it grows and it connects and it connects across different scales, right? It connects from the soil up to the leaves, which are totally different worlds, right? 
Um, and that's what we're really trying to do and creating a climate solution that can connect across different sectors and different scales. So what does that look like? Well, in terms of sectors, you know, my day, sometimes I'm talking to a local urban wood products miller, somebody who's on the ground every day, you know, cutting wood. And then I jump into a conversation with a city official. Um, and then we're talking to, you know, somebody who's looking at, you know, buying some sort of sustainable material from a national scale. And then in terms of bringing sort of these solutions at different scales, you know, it's really about transcending the local and the national and ultimately the international. And so I've always really wanted to, again, really drive and support resources coming into communities and really enabling communities to make their own decisions about how those resources go. We really don't want to be prescriptive. We want to add in those pieces and we really want to give them access to these big national um, opportunities. So I've always wanted to bring it back to New Mexico. We do a lot of work in Albuquerque, a lot of work um, in Colorado. We're starting to get some work in Texas as well, which is great. Um, a lot of work in Southern California as well. So it's growing, it's scaling, uh, but it's really exciting to, to get to go home and, and to get to, to provide that value there as well. That sounds remarkable. And did you formulate this plan while you were at school? Was this something that you built as part of that program or on the side? Yeah, I, I really started it on the side. So during my sort of in-between summers, I was working on federal policy at the World Resource Institute. So a big international NGO that does a lot of amazing thinking about how do we address climate change efficiently and how do we do that in a way that really supports communities. And so while doing that, I recognized this huge gap. And this is sort of what we were just talking about, where there's all of this growing national recognition and international recognition from businesses, from people in the finance sector, from the public sphere, from governments, that we have to be investing in climate change and we have to be really monetizing and providing the resources needed to scale these types of solutions. And there's a big gap between that and that level of ambition and on the ground solutions that can scale and be replicated um, and can have the sort of nuance to work within one community and take the best learnings there and work in other communities as well. And so recognizing that gap during my internship, I started this. Uh, it was kind of a crazy journey um, to get it up and running, but uh, really pushed it through during my last year of grad school and then started full time about a year ago. Well, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm impressed that you were doing that in the summer in between your programs. Uh, what I was doing was I was trying to see who had the best glazed donut between Winchell's <laughs> and Krispy Kreme. And who won? Uh, is equal. Well, Krispy Kreme, uh. obviously, when it's fresh, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's hard so, to I mean, beat. there's what you're doing. Boring. <laughs> and then there's what I've been doing. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, <laughs> so I saw from... <laughs> It's important but work. Somebody's got to somebody's do it. Gotta do it. Yeah. I Krispy mean. Kreme is hands down the winner if it's fresh for anybody listening. <laughs> Not to get on a tangent or anything. Uh, I read from your page or one of your pages, American cities. Now, this is the interesting part. Cities lose an average of 36 million trees each year Crazy. due to factors such as disease or infestation, age, extreme weather, resulting in economic losses up to $786 million annually. So that's cities, and we've been talking about forests up until this point. So what is going on in these cities? Yeah, so it's a crazy problem, um, and it's one that is really sight unseen. So when you don't think about it, you don't realize it. But for everybody listening, like just start looking around. When you drive, when you walk, look at what happens to trees that are getting cut down in your neighborhood. Um, watch what's happening to that wood. Because most of the time, that wood is being cut up into really small pieces, 
it's turned into mulch, um, and oftentimes it's even burned. So it's sent into these really bad pathways for reuse uh, or for the climate as well. That happens for a lot of different reasons. Um, and that's what we're really trying to address. Um, so the crazy thing there, and as you're highlighting, is more harvestable wood actually falls in our cities every year naturally um, and through plant removal. So as our cities grow, we take down more trees. Um, so that's already happening. That more of that happens in cities than in our natural forests, which is a crazy statistic. That's um, truly mind-boggling. It's unbelievable. And most of that wood is being wasted right now. So that 780 million number you're talking about, that's the amount of money that cities are paying to get rid of it. So that's paying to send wood to landfills and in disposal fees to actually get rid of that wood. So we're basically paying to get rid of a resource that we could be using in all of these amazing ways. But there's a lot of hurdles there. And so that's what we really exist as, is to help solve that problem, to make sure we can capture that wood and, and turn it into its best use. And best of all, reinvest that into the type of city trees that we really want to see, um, which is going to be really important for you know this next century as our cities get put under more and more pressure from climate change. Hey, Tim, what should we do with that dead tree over there? You mean that useless piece of garbage? Dump it. You don't think it has any value? That old thing? Nah. But it's a tree, boss. I know. Who needs it? Just another hassle with no economic benefit whatsoever. Okay, I'll send it to the landfill again, I guess. Yeah, all right, buddy. Well, I'm off for the day. I gotta go stop by Ikea and go get a dining room table, some chairs, and then I'm gonna go buy some firewood from Home Depot on my way home. I swear, it feels like 50% of every paycheck goes to wood or wood-related products. <laughs> wood. Anywho, see you tomorrow, Billy. See you, boss. And, and how did you go about starting those conversations with officials or the people who had the power to make these kinds of things happen? How did you begin that? Yeah. I mean, one of our core values is, is listen first. Um, so we spent a lot of time and continue to spend a lot of time really trying to listen and understand what is the real problem there. Um, so trying rather than saying, oh, this is what we think the problem is. Here's the solution we think you want. Starting first with what really is your problem and getting good about asking the types of questions that really open that up. So we spent a lot of time with that initially with cities. We were fortunate enough to get the 2020 TNC Natural Climate Change Solutions Accelerator Grant in partnership with the Arbor Day Foundation to go and do this in a, a number of different cities. So we are releasing our first three real detailed assessments in New York City, Pittsburgh, and Eugene in the next couple of months, which was exciting. Um, so that really allowed us to do a much deeper dive in a few specific locations. We've now expanded that and are working with a number of cities across the country to really understand what that is. And, you know, the big thing that we've realized is cities are a core part of this, right? We need cities and we need municipal solutions and we need government to help enable um, the type of solutions we need here. We also really need the private sector mm. and cities are slow. Um, that's just part of the, the reality of, of working with city government. And so we're really trying to work with both at the same time where we can enable public-private partnerships, and more private companies to be able to actually take off this wood waste so that all the pressure there is not just on cities to actually solve this problem. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah, and I saw that you got that grant, which is huge. Yep. $200,000, right? Um, it's great. That's that's amazing. So you've got three, would you call that a pilot program then? Three city pilot program, basically? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And how what how has the response been from these cities? Have they said this is great, you're solving a problem for us, or were they hesitant? 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing that's really noteworthy is, so we get this grant, right? We have this opportunity to now go take and, and solve and understand this problem in cities. We put out a, a request for proposals. So we say, hey, cities across the country, like, we think you have this problem. Come tell us if you do. And, you know, do you want to work with us? Do you want us to go in and understand it? We had 31 cities apply um, from across the country, which we were like really shocked by. So most of the major municipalities all across the country, lots of mid-sized cities some smaller cities as well. Um, and we did like not a ton, like putting this out. Um, you know, we, we weren't like super well networked with cities at that point. It was really early stage for us. And we we're like, wow, that's a real indication that there's so much demand here. And the reason for it is it provides so much value to cities. So it provides a waste solution, which is cost savings. So that's immediate dollars back into a general fund um, and back into city pockets, which is huge. And especially with constrained city budgets, that matters a lot. It's also really powerful jobs creation. And that's one of the things we get really excited about is when you create the correct type of urban forestry infrastructure in cities. So to manage your trees well, to be able to plant new trees, and in particular, to be able to manage the trees that are coming down through milling infrastructure and some other parts of that, you create a ton of jobs. And so mm -hmm. this is really awesome opportunity to bring in economic development and jobs creation into the climate conversation. And that's really the last piece is it's really climate beneficial. So as you see more cities have climate targets and net zero targets, um, it fits really, really well with those initiatives. Oh, this is just right up my alley. I love these kinds of win, 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 wins, right? Yeah, exactly. That's my favorite thing on this show is finding things that just are, appear to be better from all angles, all points yep. of view. And this certainly seems like that. You're solving a number of problems at once and you're benefiting the world. Truly, yep. truly an incredible concept. Um, I, I, I love the thought of this. So maybe explain to our listeners, what is the process, the ideal process that you see happening with these trees? A great point. So normally when a tree comes down in a city, um, it's coming down for things we talked about for weather, it's old for pest risk, um, or it's, you know, it's diseased, um, or it's, it's part of a planned removal uh, because there's a new building coming in or something like that. And so as soon as that's happening, Oftentimes, those things can be predicted. Um, so it starts with knowing what's happening first and getting our data really aligned. So that's with cities, that's with private tree care companies, that's with things like being able to understand the impacts of storms. And that starts with having really good data on your tree canopy. So you need to know what trees are there, you need to know how old they are, you need to know what condition they're in. That also helps you keep them alive for longer, which is ultimately really the goal here. As you know that, you can predict more effectively what's going to happen to those trees. Once you do, um, you are able to start thinking about how can we be being ready to, to salvage that wasted material that is going to come down. And so as we prepare for that, you want private companies as well as the city to be ready to take these trees down in a way that actually enables reuse. So oftentimes when you see somebody take down a tree, they cut it into these really short sections. I've seen it's that. It's hard to turn that. Yeah, exactly. They're called cookies. They're not delicious. Um, it's really <laughs> hard. For right a now. second, I was like, okay, we're bringing it back full circle. Cookies. Somebody said cookies. If they called I them donuts. I get excited too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can't do anything out of that, right? It's a short little stump. And so it starts with the actual taking downs. So that's building the capacity and the knowledge within those folks. And so instead, you'd be producing bigger logs, which then can be taken to local processing facilities, whether that's a city or a private company that can turn that into primary processed materials. So you can think about a slab or dimensional lumber. 
and then connecting in with secondary producers. So furniture manufacturers, flooring manufacturers, you can pretty much do anything. I mean, I've got some wood behind you or behind me here in the shot. And it's, you can use it for anything. It's amazing. It can be a cutting board. It can be a massive ceiling, you know, installation. It can be a table. Like it really has a lot of different uses. And so then it would be used. Um, The next piece of that for us is 15% of all of our profits get reinvested back into city trees. So we work with local planting organizations to help support the maintenance of existing trees and also to get a lot of new trees in the ground. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of the best case scenario, which is a lot of different stakeholders working together. Um, And that's why we call ourselves a platform. And that's the the technology that we're really bringing to the table to make that efficient. So we've got a lot of different coordinating entities that need to work well together to pass this material along and get it to market. And that's what we help really, really um, make happen. That's so incredible. And and for the companies, let, let, let me say, I, I'm a company and I make lumber. Yep. I, I sell lumber. Isn't this a major win for them as well? Where are they getting their lumber from otherwise? Wouldn't it be cheaper? Isn't it just free <laughs> materials for them? Yeah. So there's some complexity there, but okay. essentially, yes. Um, so working with existing lumber companies is something that we're doing within the specialty space. So there's these really big, large companies, and this is something I get really excited about is zooming out. So forget wood for a second. If you think about how most goods are manufactured, um, you have really like small scale niche producers, right? You know, if you're going to buy something from LA that was made in LA, likely it's from sort of a small niche producer. There's some mid-sized companies that have manufacturing or you would have to go somewhere where you could buy really high scale, high efficient manufacturing. So we do a lot of that overseas, um, you know, for wood products, that's really large industrial sawmills. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of this gradient between small scale niche manufacturing and big, large scale producers. And what we really want to create is that mid tier. Um, so people who are able to produce locally, so you create jobs, you get that local story, it's awesome. And you also save a lot on carbon and a lot of climate benefits there. But you also have some of the efficiency gains, which allow for price compatibility and access to these types of goods for more folks of having a more industrialized, higher efficiency manufacturing process. Hmm. And so that's what we're really trying to build. So from that, you know, it doesn't fit entirely within sort of the existing wood product supply chain. Because right now they're getting those trees for us. And so that's the other benefit that we're able to do is, you know, slowly, if we can start using more and more of this waste, we can displace um, some of the unnecessary harvesting there. Some, you know, sustainable forestry is great. Like we're definitely um, all about um, the forestry industry, um, but doing that in more and more climate smart ways is is really important. Hmm. And do these plants exist because I could imagine that in a lot of these major cities that there isn't that infrastructure within the city or close enough. Does it already exist or does it have to be created? Yes, is the answer to that question. (laughs) Um, Right. So this is one of our core existential challenges. This is also what gets us so excited is it does exist in the sense there's in about every city, there's three to five sort of small scale private millers who are taking that wood and, you know, processing it in some way. Generally, they're capturing a really, really small percentage of the waste stream. So probably around 1%, maybe a little bit less. In some cities, only in a couple, Baltimore is a really leading example. Sacramento is doing a great job of this. And there's a few other cities um, that have an actual city component that is bringing the wood in and doing some processing. But mostly it's done on the private scale and mostly it's done really small. And so we have um, a network of about 130 
of these different manufacturers, um, so these small-scale manufacturers, and we're helping them grow and scale. So we provide technology solutions to them by helping to make their businesses more efficient, which is great because that allows them to grow and scale, which helps them take more waste out of the market. And then the second piece is we also really work to bring in bigger orders for them. So working with national furniture brands, um, big you know, architecture and design companies who want to be able to access carbon smart wood, which is what we call our wood. So wood that's locally processed, locally salvaged and plants new local trees. It's amazing. It's charismatic. People just want to talk about it all their time. Customers love it. And so we've got all this interest from these big brands and they've never been able to access this wood before. Because if you're going to go work with one of the shops, it's not big enough. You can't actually fulfill that. But if you work with us, you can access our network. You can do that really efficiently. And that's great because it gives consistent orders to our local shops, which then allows them to scale. They can buy new equipment because they know, hey, every week, you know, I need to bring in X amount of board feet, which is really, really great. And the best part of that, and this goes back to that point of listening first, is the limitation right now is not on getting suppliers supply, so that wasted wood to the mill. The real limitation is having mills with the capacity to take on more supply. And mm. so that's like an important insight that mm. we've discovered. And what that means is if we can bring in these big orders that are consistent, that then goes back to the millers who work with the people who actually take down the trees, cities and private arborists to say, hey, anytime you're taking down an ash log, I want it. Uh, and if you can bring it in in these dimensions, that'd be great. And that then enables more ash logs to be saved from landfill and are being processed in, in higher order. And do you see this being more like for architects and larger companies versus me being able to go into a Home Depot and buy this? Is that or is that part of it, too? Eventually, it will be, you know, really brought to mass market in the way where you could actually buy dimensional lumber in, in a place like Home Depot. In the near term, we're much more focused on sort of architecture and design as well as wood products. So things like, you know, you can buy right now on our website through our different suppliers, cutting boards and other home goods. And then we're working with a number of much larger brands to bring, you know, flooring, you know, paneling, those types of really beautiful parts that really show and tell the story of the wood. Um, that is a part of our scaling plan. Um, we also do a lot of dimensional lumber sales, um, but we don't do that in sort of the mainstream Home Depot retail setting yet. Is it that different cities have different trees? Like Baltimore has much higher quality city wood than Los Angeles? Or <laughs> is there a mixed bag? Well, don't don't say that to uh, the millers in Los Angeles. Right. They, love, uh, they love the trees that you all have. Does um, graffiti enhance the value of the wood in any way? Does well, it nice seep in? You can take off the bark, which is yes. good. But you do find some crazy things in city trees, which is nuts. Like you find the crossballs and, you know, old utility things, bullets, like all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so that's part of, um, you know, managing this well is getting that out of the wood, um, which is is relatively easy to do. And a lot of our, our folks have really mastered that process. To your point about are trees different? Absolutely. I mean, every city has a different species canopy makeup. And so part of, you know, really being able to save this waste stream is learning how do we use those species well and creating the demand for them. You know, so many of these species have amazing value. They have amazing story, but they're not mainstream, right? They're not something we would traditionally harvest from a forest. And so people don't know about them. And so a big part of what we do is educate people on, hey, this species looks awesome. It functions great. It's a great outdoor species or not. And, you know, telling that story really clearly helps get more of it to the market. 
That's so fascinating. I, I once watched a TED Talk about a guy who was doing urban planting. I think it was actually in South Central around here. He was planting gardens around. And mm-hmm. somebody said that there was a lot of lead from the era of lead cars and that lead made the ground. They said, you shouldn't eat that food because it might be contaminated, something that wasn't addressed in the TED Talk. Is there an element of this wood is contaminated or less in quality than other wood or is it equal? Yeah, so I would say if we think about the type of economy that we want to have when we think long-term, we think 2100, like end of century. When I think about that, I want to be utilizing all of our waste really, really well in every sector. And part of that means dealing with waste streams. It's just different dealing with a waste stream and a waste input than a virgin input. Um, So when you have a perfectly clean product stream that is coming in, it's a lot easier to process that. Um, And you don't have to worry about a lot of these things like you're talking about, which are complexities. That said, you also get a lot more character. It's a lot more amazing. And when you think about so many of the purchases that we make as people, they don't have any soul. They don't have any story. They're not connected into anything. It's called Ikea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And so being able to buy, you know, products that are like really connected to you, like an amazing one is we have an elm tree that just came down from the national mall. So this is a tree that has seen like every inauguration and like that tree was there. Or, you know, one of the things that we're working to bring is you could get a tree that was, you know, fell down and is now turned into a picture frame that saw your parents get married, like was there where they got married. And like, that's an amazing story or a tree from your childhood home. It just occurred to me, it's like NF tree. That's a really sophisticated joke. Yeah, we actually are working on it. You're working (laughs) on it. But now that you say that, right, this tree stood here in this moment of time, Mm. or there could be a tree that has extreme value to somebody. Fascinating. 100%. Never would have thought of that. Yeah, we're working on uh, a coalition with some some crypto folks and to do that in a sustainable way and also with a number of different creators. So that, uh, that'll that launch in a few months, but we're wow. quite ready to All right, that. That's great. We're ahead of the curve. So how, how many people do you have on your team at this point in time? Yes, we have six full-time. We are um, adding in two more in the next month, and then we'll be probably adding in about eight to 10 more in the next six months. So we're growing really quickly. Um, it's because of the demand for this wood, um, and there's so much there. And you know, also demand from cities and demand for our software is helping us really scale and grow as a business. Uh, it's just been a trip. You know, It's, it's um, awesome to see that growth, and it's going to be really exciting to go to the next stage. You know, Lots to figure out there as, as we do it as well. And you began in earnest, was 2019 when it actually began? So we started working on this again as a grad school project. I was working on the solo for a while before my co-founders joined. Um, We actually incorporated um, on Earth Day in 2020, which was a particularly uh, pandemic-ridden Earth Day in April. Um, So hard time to actually start. We've been full-time for about a year and a few months now. And you've grown this fast in that little time. That's remarkable. And that's that's so cool. So that means you've clearly tapped into something of incredible value, obviously. Um, and you joined an accelerator, right? What it, the the Psi Center for Innovative Thinking? That was that. That's a part of Yale, or what is that accelerator? Yeah, so we were able to do several different parts of the Yale entrepreneurship ecosystem. So Psy City um, and Joseph Psy, who's the co-founder of Alibaba, we actually had a great conversation with um, a couple of weeks ago um, on a different 
podcast. Um, really, he funded that and has built out that center. And there's some amazing resources. And I think one of the, the most important things is as an early stage startup, especially in those really early days, like, I mean, I'm a first time founder. I really come from a climate science and carbon science background, not from the business background, like learning about how to be a CEO and getting any of those sort of near-term wins is so, so valuable. And so SciCity really gave us a ton of those resources, which was awesome. You know, it was really, really great. There's amazing folks there uh, and it, it helped us get off the ground in a really big way. And it was a real privilege to, to be able to have that type of resource and, and backing. It's that point where we interrupt the action with a little bit of a commercial here, and the commercial is always very simple. The idea is this. If you like the show at all, if it's helped you at all, if it's helped you think about your own life even just a little bit, or if you've been introduced to some fascinating people like Ben Christensen, all I ask is that you help the show grow by liking, commenting, sharing, subscribing on YouTube, all of the above. Most importantly, go to Apple Podcasts, rate the show five stars, leave a nice review. It'll help me a lot. That's all I ask. But now back to the show. And, and to that point, I think a lot of people listening, so at this point, people have ideas. They know they want to be involved in something. They just don't know what. They want yep. the environment to be better. Uh, funding is always a thing that comes up. Sure you want to do something. So you've had a couple of decent grants. You got, I think, a $10,000 grant in the beginning. How have you seen funding as this process has gone along? Yeah, absolutely. I mean we're really trying to build the next generation of company, you know, a company that actually does good for the world. And I've got a Ted talk coming out in a few weeks about that. Um, you do, but to do that. Yep. A couple of weeks. Oh out, man, um, I can't wait. You'll have to send me a pointer as soon as that's up. Yeah, I will. Uh, Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Really excited about it. Um, but the core point there is we're trying to build a company that is actually doing good and doing that really involves more holistic thinking. And so if you're thinking more holistically, you also have to be thinking about funding more holistically. So for us, if you're going to address this problem at scale, there's sort of three key things that you need to do. One, you need to work with cities to help create the enabling conditions to capture this resource. So that's sort of policy consulting. That's best funded through grants and NGOs and is more of sort of a traditional consulting business. The second is you need the infrastructure to do it, right? If you're going to capture this wood, we're going to turn it into wood products. It's got to be saws. There's got to be people who can cut it. You need actual hard infrastructure. That's best funded through debt finance. So through lending and through partners who can provide that type of finance. And then the last piece is the actual platform. You know, who connects these dots, right? What is the technology that underlies this that makes this efficient? What is the technology that allows us to really track where that wood came from and make sure that we actually know what carbon went into it, because uh, that's something that's really, really important for us. And that's best funded through venture capital. And so we sit across all three of those pools um, and we really work with a lot of partners in order to do that. And so we've done a lot of grant funding. We've got a couple of exciting grants that will be announced um, in the next couple of months um, that we just won. Um, we also are in the process of setting up uh, our first sort of couple of debt finances where we're actually helping to build the mills. And then we're, um, we've raised our, our pre-seed round of venture capital this spring. We're currently raising a seed round, um, which is going really well. Um, so we're seeing a lot of growth and excitement there from the impact investing community that wants to put monies into these, these types of solutions. So my thought on capital is think broadly, especially in the climate space, um, and really bring in strong partners. So we've had a great partnership with the Resource Institute, with American Forests, with the Arbor Day Foundation, folks who have helped us really 
level up and, you know, be able to access different types of capital. You know, you're not the first person. That's so fascinating. You're not the first person who has said that. By yeah. the time this airs, Silicon Valley, Catalin Voss, uh, mm-hmm. social entrepreneur, he said something similar, which is as we're talking, this is last week's episode, but it'll be yeah, months yeah. ago whenever this airs. Uh <laughs> He said something different, uh, something similar about different types of funding. Now, where did you get that idea? How did you figure that out? Oh, good question. Um, I had an amazing mentor um, at the World Resource Institute, Jamie Mulligan, um, who now um, leads a lot of the carbon work for Amazon, who has helped me think about these things really well. So he's existed in a number of these different spaces from being really in policy in the Obama White House, being more in the NGO space um, at WRI, and then also now in the private sector at Amazon. And he helps me like, and has really helped uh, me understand and see a lot of those different components. We've also had a number of other amazing mentors who have helped do that. And I think, you know, the biggest thing for me, and I mentioned this earlier as a core company value, this is also just a personal value is when I don't know something, I try to find somebody who does and really listen to them and pull apart um, how that would apply in this specific context. And so I've just been really fortunate to have people around me who have who've been able to help me understand how do you actually go for these different types of capital? What are your options? How do you need to frame yourself um, in order to, to access that? And, you know, that's, that's a challenging thing, uh, but it's, it's really, really valuable. And how did you seek out these mentors? Did they find you? Did you find them? What was your process? Both, um, you know, fortunate enough to have some people in my life from, you know, past work um, that are relationships that I've really maintained. Also, um, one of our most amazing mentors, somebody who has totally changed my way of thinking. Um, you know, I've reached out to him cold email from a, um, you know, a, a, a web search. It was actually, yeah, it's a crazy story, but I, I, I reached out to him cold started talking. Um, We now talk every week. He's been totally catalytic in my thinking. He's also one of our lead investors in the pre-seed round. And it all just happened from finding an email and really being curious. Like I just, um, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have any intent. I didn't know that this person like would lead to all of this. I just was really curious about his job as a headhunter. And like, what does that even mean? Like, Mm. what does it mean to be an executive recruiter? And how do you place people in roles effectively, because that's something I'm thinking about all the time as a CEO. Mm. So I reached out to him with those questions. And then turns out we had all these other synergies and it led to that. So I think just being really genuinely curious and, and asking, you know, people what they know, it's great. I mean, obviously you've, you've nailed it. People love to talk about themselves. So, <laughs> that's um, true. Pretty yes. easy. <laughs> Whew, thank God for me. Um, <laughs> that is a, a wonderful feature of humanity. <laughs> it's true. Helps you out. For sure. Yes. Yes, it does. And it's, it's always remarkable how many people are out there doing incredible things such as yourself, yeah. people that you wouldn't cross paths with any other way. It continues to blow my mind on this personal adventure, just the wealth of truly incredible people out there. For sure. And, you know, we see on social media all of the idiots every single day, and then we think that's literally everybody. But, of course, it's not literally everybody. It's just perhaps some a of, large majority. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. uh, but some people are doing truly fascinating stuff. And it's great that you're experiencing a hunger for this kind of idea that you're saying, seeing people are ready to invest in this. It's clearly an idea whose time has come from a variety of standpoints. Yep. Now, for you personally, it sounds to me like you had this idea going forward. Everything was more or less a continuous rapid success. Were there any challenges? Was there any moment where this wasn't going to work out? Or what, what were some of the hurdles that you faced? Oh, man. I mean, you know, it's been 
lots of hard moments. Um, I think one of the things I feel about, and this is, this is my first time doing this, there's people with a lot more experience than I do, but about building a company is you're always sort of on the edge of a mountain. So I'm an ultra runner. I spend a lot of time trail oh, running and okay. love spending time in mountains. And, you know, one of the things there's, there's some trails that really go along a ridgeline. And, you know, when you're running, it's like you could trip in either direction and you would just start rolling. And so I think that is one of the things that we've experienced, which is, you know, you get these early wins um, that really help build momentum and help start you moving. But you're also always super vulnerable just for tripping and like one thing goes wrong and it could all be downhill really, really quick. And so there's been, you know, a lot of those moments, especially early days, um, you know, especially when I was solo on it um, for a while. It's really hard and it's really hard, you know, like now I'm able to articulate and like our idea has improved so much. We've got traction, we've got revenue, we've got grants, we've got our story really solidified. In the early days, you don't have any of that. You've got an idea and you've got yourself. Mm -hmm. And I pitch this to a lot of folks, to friends, to colleagues, you know, investors, mentors, and got so many no's. I mean, just no, no across the board. It's too complex. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. That's a lot of it was because I didn't know how to present it yet. I didn't know how to talk about it. And also because we didn't have any proof of concept. And so those early days, really, really hard. Um, and there's plenty of challenges that I think we faced. And I really will say bringing on my co-founders was such an amazing decision. And I would say for anybody who's building something, having a few people around you who are really, really committed. And for me, Marissa and Theo have been absolutely catalytic in our success. And it's been great. That's that's so wonderful. And and do you feel that having the mission propels you forward in those tough times because you have a sense of a greater sense of what you're doing is important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is so critical yeah. for humanity that we get this right. And, you know, we are not a silver bullet. I really don't believe in silver bullet solutions. Um, when we think about addressing climate change, like we need everything. You know, there's not one thing that's going to bail us Every out. Every that helps. Absolutely. Um, but we think we can play a big role in that. And doing this at scale, starting with wood, eventually we'll move to other materials. And our vision is to be able to access any local waste um, really, really easily and really efficiently. And so being able to do that in a big way is really motivating. And, you know, the last thing I would say there that is also really motivating is just the people. So the people we get to work with, um, you know, getting to work with local community tree planting organizations that do such amazing work and really helping them grow and helping them scale is, is huge. And so being able to see that and to see, you know, trees we planted in Baltimore or in New Haven that are there because of this is, is big and it's a really small scale right now, but we, we really want to see it go bigger. So it's definitely motivating. The potential is huge. And also I imagine that cities like Stockholm, you know, Sweden, Norway, all of yeah. these uh, more progressive European countries will be very interested in this kind of thing, I'm sure. 100%. Now, I'm also interested in the business model. So you said that you're a platform first and foremost. So what, how does that work? So you're bridging the gap between private companies and cities, and then you take a percentage or what is the actual model that you're proposing here? Yeah. So it's a little bit complicated, which always is, <laughs> you know, part of the trip. Um, so we have sort of three core parts of our business model. So when you think about what we're building, it's ultimately a two-sided marketplace. So we are connecting suppliers, people who are able to take away stream and turn it into something higher value with buyers. Um, so great examples of that are 
Uber or Airbnb, right? In order to do a two-sided platform really well, you need a lot of buyers on it and you need a lot of suppliers. Mm -hmm. And the key thing that we have to deal with as well, which is one of our core challenges, is we have to help our suppliers level up, right? And again, Uber has struggled with this in a lot of different ways, but a lot of people know how to drive a car, right? And can do that. And there's a lot of car rounds. And there's obviously other complexity in their sort of supplier driver model. For us, most of our suppliers don't have any technology built into their business and they're relatively small scale. And so we have to help them really grow and get bigger. And so we provide a platform for them called Trace, which is an inventory management software and that does a lot of other business optimization to help them really grow and scale and to be able to provide a lot more value. And so that's one way that we monetize, which is software as a service and then also transaction fees through sales um, on their platform. And, you know, that's that's a big piece. And then the second piece of our business model is really being a broker. Um, so bringing in these bigger deals, putting them through our network and fulfilling them. Um, so that's the second part of that. As we get bigger and bigger and build up the technology more, we will work ourselves out of that and be more of like a traditional marketplace where it's more of just a, a transaction fee between buyers mm -hmm. and then sellers. And then the last component that we really do, and again, this is really high value for us from the business perspective, is we work with cities and we help them solve these problems. We provide a ton of value and we also get paid for that. And that helps us understand the local context, helps us address and engage with other local suppliers and buyers locally, all within a context of, of consulting. So those are sort of the three pillars of our business. They all synergize together, which is really great. You know, when we bring a new mill onto our software platform, we're able to fulfill bigger orders. And when we have bigger orders, it makes it easier to bring on, you know, new mills. And then when we work with cities, we get to go and understand who all the mills are and help bring them onto our platform. So it's, it's a really synergistic business model. That's, that's uh, really wonderful. Um, and, you know, is there, so people start harvesting these trees, they're coming down from natural causes. Is there a risk that that old saying that, you know, somebody's smashing their own windows to keep a window company in business? Is there a risk that as this idea becomes more popular and more known that people just start cutting down city trees? Oops, that one fell down, but it didn't really fall down. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's one of the things that we are super, super focused on. So one of our other core values is unequivocally good, which means being able to be sure that everything we do is really, really good for the world and good for people. To do that, we can't be creating incentives to cut down a lot more wood. And so in order to do that, we are building out the type of chain of custody solutions that, you know, really ensure that those trees don't come down. Um, so there's technology that helps underpin that, that allows us to track and make sure that all of those pieces are there. Um, and then the other core component is being very, very clear about that and being really, really vigilant on that. So that's doing quality assurance checks. That's going and making sure we're checking in with the arborists who are actually contacting our millers to ensure where those trees came from. As we start to see more and more data in cities, we're going to be able to do that more effectively. And then the last component is we just have a zero tolerance policy on that. So if anybody is putting out carbon smart wood that comes from a tree that was harvested, it's done. Like you're off our platform. We're never going to work with you again. Like that's not how we produce this. And that's really, really core for what we believe and, and for our, our, our messaging as well. Yeah. Because it's easy to imagine anytime somebody sees free money lying around. Sure. You've always got that, that risk. So Absolutely. the tree is harvested, hopefully responsibly, and then it gets sent off. You collect your, your cut. And then at the end of all of this, planting trees is the final step. So how yep. do we 
do that? Do you plant a tree exactly where there was one before, one for one, or what's the thought on planting? Yeah, so lots of times when you look at folks who are planting right now, they're sort of doing this $1 per tree model, which is really problematic in lots of ways um, because trees are more expensive than that, um, especially in any sort of city or peri-urban context, so the areas surrounding cities. And again, there's lots of value. It's great to be helping support rural reforestation, but we also really want to be supporting reforestation where it really matters to people. And that's more expensive. Um, so we are focused on, you know, really giving back. So if you buy, let's say you buy a table from us, um, from a tree that was found in Baltimore, we will then work with the Baltimore Tree Trust um, to facilitate new planting back in Baltimore. An important piece is we're not just focused on tree replacement, because if you just do tree replacement, you end up with the same inequitable tree canopies that we have right now. So if you look at like an aerial view of most cities in the U.S., you will see the trees are really aligned and are mostly in wealthier, whiter neighborhoods, right? They're yes. places where often communities. Certainly yeah, true crazy. here. Certainly true yep. in the greater Los Angeles area. It's totally true. And yeah. so tree canopy maps really match redlining, you know, where communities of color were, you know, really intentionally excluded from being able to own property. And it's awful. Um, and so what we're really focused on is something called tree equity, which is helping to facilitate and working with communities to plant trees, um, you know, with communities that don't have them because there's so many benefits of trees. Yeah. It's cooler. It's beautiful. It's property value. Like there's all these energy savings that you can get, like all of these things. And so many communities are just left out of that. So we're really working with organizations that help facilitate that. And I think the last thing I would say there too is for us as a national organization, like we don't want to go into a community and tell them this is where you should plant a tree. We want to work with a local organization that is part of that community that says, hey, we need more trees here. And we are ready to take care of them and we're ready to grow that. And so that's something that we're really focused on as well is, is getting that right rather than being prescriptive. Well, I am completely smitten. You're saying all the right things. <laughs> Everything is great. I love this. Man, am I glad we connected today. Um, it's great. You said your goal is to plant 1 billion trees in the U.S. by 2030. That seems like an insane number. Is that as insane as it seems? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I think that is something that we had put out initially. Um, we are focused now, and again, this comes from a number of different spaces, on really driving urban and peri-urban reforestation. So I did a lot of initial analysis on this. There's about 60 billion new trees that could be planted in the U.S. So there's a lot, uh, which is a huge opportunity, and we should be going after it. Our goal is to really create a consistent revenue stream that you can then do that off of. And so that's what we're really trying to build. Um, we'll see if we get there, if we go to scale in the kind of way that we can, if this becomes a national initiative and we grow you know, at the same pace that we're growing and are able to take this across the country, that's something that's, um, it's, it's achievable. It's, it's out there, uh, but it's a really ambitious goal. Um, so we're working with a lot of partners like OneT.org, One uh, as well as American Forest and a number of these other folks to also help facilitate that type of uh, ambitious goal as well. Well, it's it's all incredible. You're ticking off every box for me personally. <laughs> That's uh, great. No, truly. I mean, I'm just in awe. I, I love coming across minds who think like you're, you're, you're making so many connections with a concept yeah. like this. And it's just 
I'm just in awe. What can I say? It's fascinating to witness because it's all so logical. I think these ideas, they always seem so logical when they're presented to you. And you're yeah. like, oh, that makes sense. Well, why didn't you think of it? Why didn't I think of it? I don't know. <laughs> why did you, but not somebody else? But you did. And it's brilliant. Yeah. I support it wholeheartedly. I think it's Thanks. phenomenal. And I can't wait to see what happens and also to watch your TED Talk. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that that, I mean, who knows what that's going to do for you, right? That kind of exposure. We'll see. God knows where you go from here. Yep. Um, we're approaching the end of the hour. So I wanted to mm-hmm. go, do an old standby, a little chestnut here. Great. Um, first of all, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received on this or just in general? I think the best piece of advice I've ever received is when somebody's giving you advice, if they don't listen first and if they don't understand your context, don't take that advice. Um, I certainly have a lot of people and we all have a lot of people who want to tell us a lot of things. And there's lots to be learned from other people, but you're going to get a lot out, lot more out of it from folks who make the time to really understand where you're coming from. And we've all had that conversation where you ask somebody for advice and then they just start talking about themselves or about something totally unrelated. Um, so getting good at getting good advice, I think is, is really important. That's very good. And now I'm going to shift up my, my last question to be more relevant. Right. So in the TikTok era, 13 to 17 year old kids, Many of them feel screwed over. Many of them feel like they're inheriting impossible situations. Many are depressed. It's not good. At that age, what can you say to those kids who want to do something positive and who don't want to just resign to their fate? Yeah, I think a few things. Look, I mean, I'm 25. You know, I really plan to live until 2100. That's the goal. I would love to be seeing the end of century with as many of those folks as possible. And so we've got to believe in it. I've, I've always really believed that we only get to a best case scenario if we believe in it. And so that doesn't mean, you know, hiding your head in the sand. It means really looking at the reality of the situation but also maintaining optimism. And there's a lot we should really be optimistic about. And there's also a lot we should be demanding. And, you know, I think the biggest thing I would say is that what I've learned is if you learn well, if you find people around you who are going to make you better, and if you believe that you can make an impact, which every single one of us can, every single uh, you know person at that age certainly can, we can change the world. And I don't want to just change the world. Change is like such an arbitrary thing. You can change the world for way worse. I want to make the world way, way better. And I want to make the world way better for everyone. So doing that in a really equitable way. And we can do that. Um, so I would just say, maintain a sense of optimism, find people around you who are going to really help you be the best version of yourself and really, really learn about the problem. And that's, you know, I didn't know like all of these details about urban wood. I didn't even know urban wood was a problem until like a year and a half ago, but I spent a ton of time since then really understanding it. And now we have this amazing solution that can really take to scale. So that's what I would say. Well, that's, that sums it all up. Fantastic way to cap off this show. Again, thank you very much for your time. I'm blown away. You got a big fan in your corner. I'm very <laughs> glad we met. Uh, I wish you nothing but success. For those listening, the website is cambiumcarbon.com. That's C-A-M as in Mary, B-I-U-M, carbon.com. Support this man, Ben Christensen. (laughs) Do whatever you can. Spread the word. And to you, Ben, I say again, thank you. Keep on rocking. Keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track, clearly. And I will continue to observe and cheer you on from afar. So Yeah. 
I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the conversation. And yeah, let's, let's go build this together. Sounds good. And with that, the official podcast is over. You don't get too many like that. That was an incredible episode. My mind is blown. Again, it seems so simple when you think about it. When you hear him explain it, it all seems so easy. But of course, it takes real genius to come up with these easy things. What I love about it is is that it's finding something for free, something for nothing, something that a lot of people just wrote off, something that a lot of people didn't think about. I think that the great solutions of tomorrow are all gonna be things like this, harvesting things from unexpected sources so that we don't have to just build forests and chop them down and ship them all around the world. There are alternatives to a lot of the stuff, we just have to embrace them. And the only way that you can help and you can help people embrace these kinds of stories is by sharing this story. Share it with somebody who needs to hear it. Share it on your Facebook, share it on your Instagram, share the post, subscribe on YouTube, leave a comment, rate the show five stars. If you believe in these missions, if you believe in these people, do anything you can to help the podcast grow and I'll be really appreciative of it. As always, this is the Beat the Off and Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer, and I will see you next Friday.